You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Justice Set Conversation. I'm Jared Sandler welcoming you to another episode. For those of you back for more, appreciate the continued support. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, thanks so much for giving this a shot. Today we're releasing episode 51. It's with Seth Payne. Now, depending on your allegiances and maybe in what part of the country you exist or have lived, you might know Seth uh, as a football player, someone who uh, spent uh, about a decade in the NFL with the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Houston Texans. Uh, someone who went to Cornell, almost didn't even finish high school, and he ended up going to an Ivy League school uh, with a really, really interesting childhood story of, of where he grew up and, and what life was like for him uh, growing up uh, uh, in that part of the world. Uh, you might also know him as a really successful sports broadcaster. He's been uh, hosting shows down in Houston, the, the sister station of 105.3 The Fan, uh, 610 in Houston, and he's really made a, a you know, not just uh, sports broadcasting as a, a side thing, but this really has become a, a second career for him. And I uh, spoke to him about his playing days, what preceded that, spoke to him about his broadcasting career, and even his wife, who uh, might have a more interesting story than he does. Uh, before we get going, though, just want to remind you, would really appreciate if you would uh, subscribe. Uh, just click a little button. It's easy to do. Maybe you want to click that thumbs up button and like this, uh, comment, uh, and, and just share the link. I mean, if you know a Texans fan, a, a Jacksonville fan, maybe someone who uh, listens to Houston Sports Talk or just someone who might find this to be interesting, I'd really appreciate if you would share the link. But uh, without further ado, it's time for Episode 51 of the Justice Set Conversation with Seth Payne. All right, Seth, so I read that you grew up I guess more or less on a farm. I'm just curious, what was your childhood like, and, and what were those experiences like for you? You know, it's uh, yeah. I don't. I I, I got to check into my Wikipedia more often because sometimes people go in there and just uh, run roughshod over it. But that's generally accurate. I was I drove I I was in a farming family, so my dad was a farmer, but I lived with my mom. They were divorced, so between my father, my grandpa, my uncles and my cousins. I was always working on a farm of some sort and then, uh, but, but living with my mom. So I had a lot of, I, I spent a whole lot of time working on farms growing up. You got to blame your guy Landry Locker. Cause he basically made it seem like you, uh, you grew up with overalls and a, you know, a piece of straw in your mouth, uh, with a <laughs> tractor or something. Uh, what I was kinda... your, what, I'm just curious, what was your favorite and least favorite task on the farm? Um, it, that's interesting because there's a lot of least favorite. <laughs> okay, anything involving hay, especially like as you develop hay fever and allergies on, and when you're getting into high school, like anything involving hay just sucks. And the worst, one of the worst things to do also is we had a couple silos that because we lived up north, they were they had covered ladders up the side of them. So when you climb up the ladder, there's this chute, and as you're climbing up, all this silage just keeps falling down or more more specifically when you're climbing back down all this silage falls down from on top and is just getting underneath your shirt and 
doing everything, like just getting getting every into every crevice of your sweaty body. So there was that. Um, my senior year, I graduated from high school early. So my senior year, I was working for my cousins, and I was going to do I would scrape manure at four in the morning. So that was wow. my job from like four a.m. to noon. I would go and I would scrape manure at four a.m. for about a good hour or two. Uh, and, and then from there I'd, I'd move on from the poop sciences into feeding <laughs> animals and other stuff like that. So really anything involving manure, Hey, I guess were the worst ones. Was poop sciences a major at Cornell? Was that an option? <laughs> I think there, I, there might be, they, they, there's probably a euphemism for it. Uh, yeah, Cornell, Cornell's got an ag school. It's the one Ivy league school that's got an ag school. So it keeps us less snooty than all those other schools. Uh, I, I want to get into your time there because obviously there aren't a lot of NFL players who come from Ivy League schools. But I guess sticking kind of with your your upbringing, what drew you to sports, and and when do you really recall kind of connecting, whether it was with football or, or just sports in general? Uh, you know, it's it's, it's kind of weird for me, I guess, as somebody that ended up in the NFL because I never really considered myself a good athlete. My older brother was a really really good athlete, and he was this undersized kind of scrappy kid that was good at every sport, really good hand-eye coordination, and just was a late bloomer too. So he didn't get any football interest or anything, but he went and he wrestled at, at Clarion University, which is Division One for wrestling. It's also that's a, that's the school Kurt Angle went to. They were there at Clarion the same, at the same time. But I always kind of felt like in my brother's shadow when it came to sports, and, and I played him and I was good enough at him. But in football, all of a sudden, I can remember when I was in eighth grade, I kind of just, all of a sudden, it just started clicking for me. And I just, I just had a feel for football, and I was started to grow up into my body a little bit to where I was a little bit bigger. Um, and and that's, that's really the only sport that I've ever been good at. I was never really that good a wrestler. I was a horrible basketball player, sucked at baseball. Uh, but I just kind of had a knack for football and, and through high school just really learned to love it just because I was good at it. And so you, you end up going to Cornell. Was that more of a football decision or was that more of an academic decision? Oh, it was a, it was a combination just other than that if it weren't for football, there was no way in hell I was going to college. <laughs> like I just, I kind of, I, I quit high school my junior year because I just wanted to go travel and my, my family talked me back into it. So spring of my junior year, I had quit high school for a couple of weeks and and went off and kind of had fantasies about traveling around the country. They pulled me back home and we talked to guidance counselor and, you know, we set up a plan for me to to graduate after my fall semester. And at that point, my plan was to either join the Marines or go work on a fishing boat in Alaska. And then I, but then I, but then also I ended up like growing two more inches and started just beating the crap out of these poor little upstate New York kids in football. And, uh, and I started getting some interest from, from different schools. And Cornell was just, Cornell was like the biggest and best school that showed any interest in me. And I'd had a bunch of family members that had gone there too. So, you know, obviously my, my family wanted me to go there and I kind of just, I kind of just stumbled Forrest Gump style into playing football at Cornell and, <laughs> and ended up uh, in the NFL a few years later. And, and the way I describe it as I'm saying it right now, 
Boy, the horrible motivational speech in terms of uh, <laughs> like setting your sights on a goal or anything. Well, I'm curious because I, I would have guessed, and, and, and you know this obviously, that there are certain people who they go to an Ivy League school and without sports they don't get in. And then there are other people who they're great athletes, but they probably could have gotten in without sports. And I would have guessed that you were more in that category just listening to you uh, you know, when I, I I get on the app and listen to what you guys are talking about down in Houston and the conversations I've had with you. So I guess, so, did you embrace the academic side once you got to Cornell or were you still kind of rebelling against it like you sort of did more or less towards, uh, I guess, the, the end of your high school time? I think uh, I, I tried to embrace it and I think I just, you know, I've I've always had a hard time with formal education, I guess, or having having constraints put on me, which is weird because in football, I think I was actually like a lot of times I was a coach's pet. You know, if if you have somebody tell me to do something, I'll do it at a, a thousand miles an hour. So I I think I just kind of floated along on the academic side of things at Cornell. Um, I got in. I would say I got in through a combination of my SAT scores and having a farming background. Because I told you Cornell is an ag school. So it's a big deal if you come from a farming background because so few people do these days. So between, I got like a 1,500 on my SATs. I still, I had, I had really good high school grades, um, you know, enough to put me in a top percentile in my class, not enough to get me into like as a biology major, a chemistry major or anything at Cornell. So I started off as a I think an ag business, an ag business major. So between that football, my my credit, my SAT scores, and everything, I kind of I kind of got in that way. But um, when I got there, it was weird. Yeah, it was almost. It was like I was going to Cornell, but I, I I felt like I was going to a bigger school, and that I only cared about football and not much else, <laughs> just like a guy at a bigger school might. But I didn't. Uh, I one of my regrets, I guess, would be that I didn't really didn't really take advantage of all the different intellectual offerings when I was there. All right. Now, at at what point during your time there did you get the sense that football after college was going to be an option? Or was that something that when you got to Cornell, you're like, hey, I'm going to bust my tail and then the NFL's next? Or was that a realization while you were at Cornell? That was a realization my, my junior year where scouts come around you know and back at that time there hadn't been anybody drafted out of the ivy league in in quite a long time i want to say it was over a decade um but because the ivy league started having freshman football and spring practices and kind of making it a, a more advanced setup more guys were developing and becoming nfl prospects so your junior year scouts come out and they time you in the 40 and they watch some film and I think it's the Blesso Scouts, the scouting service that a bunch of different teams use. And I got identified as a guy that, that could potentially make it. So from that point there, I was kind of, you know, at, at that point I was realizing, oh, wow, I'm going to have to stay an extra semester if I want to graduate from this place. <laughs> and I was getting kind of antsy. And, and I just, look, I really love playing football, but I kind of set my sights on it as, as my one goal in life at that point. And I just went full bore into it. We had a strength coach that was new at the time. Tom Howley, who was just awesome. Um, and I just started doing everything he told me to do. And I stayed up there over the summer and, and kind of with that in mind, you know, just ended up 
having a really good senior season and uh, and then got drafted by the Jaguars in the fourth round. Yeah, so the, the 97 draft, uh, some people might think of it as the, uh, the draft Orlando Pace went first. I, I like to think of it as the Seth Payne draft. You mentioned uh, fourth round pick. Did you... You know, we have like mock seventeen point five three from you know these these draft folks. By the time the draft starts, I I don't recall what the the mock draft setup was back then, and if they did seven round mock drafts. But did you was that about where you expected to go? Did you think you were going to go higher? Did you think you were going to go lower? I guess what was that that day or, or series of days like for you? You know, when I think back on it, it's amazing how little I knew. <laughs> like, it, it's amazing. <laughs> It, because you're right, back then, it was a whole lot different. There just simply weren't all the websites and all the analysis. And if there were seven-round mock drafts, I, don't, I certainly didn't know about them. I really just had what my agents had told me, which was that, you know, you, you're probably going to go somewhere between the third and fifth round. And I had visited a few teams. I worked out for the Jaguars. Uh, or Well, yeah, I worked out for the Jaguars at Cornell, and then they also brought me down on a visit. So... But then the Jaguars drafted a defensive lineman in the first round, uh, a defensive tackle, Ronaldo Wynn. So I kind of thought they were off the board. So I, I really didn't know. Like I kind of, I, I kind of, I, you float through that whole as a small school guy. It's so strange. Every step along the way from the end of your senior season until the draft, you keep going through these different events and milestones that are just completely mind-blowing because all these other big guys, you know, seen other big names before. And, you know, if you play at Alabama, you're going to run into your share of NFL players. But I just remember going to the combine and just being just so freaked out by talking to guys that I had seen on television and some of the coaches. Like, I remember standing at a urinal and realizing that the guy next to me was, was Jerry Glanville. That was a, for whatever reason, like that's the thing that really kind of like freaked me out. And then just looking around and seeing Bill Cower and all these guys. And then I remember at the combine too, when I went to work out, I was doing all right through my bench press, uh, you know, doing the, the wonder lick and all the other stuff, running my 40, no big deal. Cause when we got to the position drills, I remember like watching these guys go through the drills and I'd never seen big men move as fast as they were all moving. And I got kind of freaked out, and I started trying way too hard. I started, like, <laughs> tripping over all the bags. And it like, really really looked pretty stupid going through some of those drills because I almost felt like, man, I, I can't keep up with these guys. And, uh, and it was the same way you get to training camp. It's, just, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing for a guy from a small school. Did you feel like – you needed to prove yourself because you were from a small school or maybe was there a mental block at any point, even after the combine where it's like, you're asking yourself, do I really belong with these guys from the sec and the big 12? Or did you, I guess after that point, after you got through the combine, just realize, Hey, I, I can hang. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's kind of, you know, how it is when you're young, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell whether you actually believe in yourself or if you're just, being cocky to convince yourself that you believe in yourself. And, and I think it was a little bit of that, like a little obstinacy just led me to, to believe that, yeah, I could do this. And then, you know, you know, part of it, I don't know if I really had a chip on my shoulder until I got to training camp and really like the OTAs and mini camps and everything, the workout period when all the rookies are there. I was hanging around with a couple guys on the team 
who both came from bigger schools or bigger conferences that were rookie free agents. And um, I think one might have been a late round draft pick, or one was a rookie free agent. And they were they were good guys. They weren't jerks at all or anything. Um, but like it was like every now and then you could kind of hear a little bit in their voice of like, well, you know, yeah, I, you know, I was a, I was an all Big Ten player and I didn't get drafted, but for some reason, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know why they like some of these smaller school guys, you know, to the point where you're like, all right, yeah, I got, I got, yeah, I got drafted, and uh, and like I'm gonna, I'm gonna show people that yeah, you guys, you guys might have been more developed when you're 18 years old. Or you might have just gone through puberty early, or whatever. Like a lot of guys that end up at a lot of guys that end up at big time schools. I swear it's just because they went through puberty when they were thirteen, and they get uh, they get they get picked out as, as monstrous freaks. Um, so yeah, there was a little bit of chip on my shoulder. And then the other thing, Jared, that you have to worry about is a guy coming from like a school like Cornell, is that there's always going to be some old school scout or coach that's going to think you're soft or that you're more interested in school, which was which was so far from the truth with me. Um, so I ended up getting in like quite a few fights my rookie year because I thought like, all right, well, they're not going to like, I'm not going to let these guys think I'm a punk. So anytime any offensive lineman mess with me at all, I would just, I just start fighting. Any like, you know, 10 round uh, showdowns with someone or were they all like your standard training camp We're we're tired of being here and we're banging into each other 50 times a day type fights. Yeah, there's exactly that. The latter, which is the best part. Like this, this is the best part about a football fight. is <laughs> It's so weird. It's almost like it's almost like. Uh, did you see Hamilton? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know the part where they're explaining how in a duel you can just you can turn and fire your your weapon in the air, and in that <laughs> way, like your honor is preserved, but you're not murdering somebody. And it just feels almost like okay, you're going through this whole ritual for a bunch of nothingness just to try to you know to prove that you are brave enough to do it. That's what a lot of training camp fights are like. Because it's gonna get it's gonna get broken up immediately, but there's just something about guys showing a willingness to to fight back, and and this was different. This is in the late '90s where it was a lot more common. Like it wasn't, you know, now now a lot of teams just have strict no fighting policies. But the one guy, it, it, it's kind of it used to be kind of prison rules. You know, there was one huge guy, Brian DeMarco, that played for the Jaguars, who was like six foot seven, three hundred twenty pounds, and and he kind of had an issue with me someday, and I thought, all right, well, this is like the this is like the biggest guy in the cell block. I'm just going to go after him. And uh, so I, I kind of I went after him, and we, you know, we we landed a few. You do like an open handed, you know, you're trying to strike blows without breaking your hand. And I got his helmet off, so I got his helmet off and was in and got a shot one shot in on his face, and then it got broken up. But that's kind of like the closest you get to actually winning a fight most of the time is if you got the other guy's helmet off. That's like that's like getting the guy's jersey over his head and boxing. You know, like that's okay. You you would have won if they let it continue. Or excuse me, no, the jersey over his head in uh, hockey. Hockey, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. I, I'm I'm thinking about D two, the Mighty Ducks, when they teach Kenny Wu how to uh, Portman and. Uh, Fulton Reed teach Kenny Wu how to fight, and uh, that, that's that's what I'm thinking about now. It, you mentioned Jacksonville, and, and I'm sure you've been asked this a million times over, but uh, Tom Coughlin, an incredibly accomplished coach, not always one that would be considered a player's coach. Uh, what was your experience like with Tom Coughlin? That's a, that's a really tougher question than you might think, because I think with somebody like Coughlin, 
it's easy to think of, okay, well, guys are either going to hate him or they're not going to care about him or, or whatever. I, I think the biggest thing with Tom Coffin is playing for him is what I always imagined growing up with a, um, a disapproving father would be like, or, or a father who is hard to please. I shouldn't say disapproving. But, you know, you some of these kids that grow up in, in families where, where the father is extremely strict and expects the most out of his kids and you better get straight A's or you're grounded and all that. I, I think that's what it was like. And just like in a lot of those families, it's really amazing how driven those kids can be to try to please their fathers. And that's, that's Coughlin, I think, in a nutshell. He's extremely, if not impossible, to please. But because he is that male authority figure at the top, you really want to really either prove him wrong or figure out a way to please him or just figure out a way to meet his standards. And it's like at times it's infuriating, you know. There's, there's times where I wanted a P.J. Carlissimo him, and it's just <laughs> like there's, there's times where you just flat out, you, you get that angry at the guy. Um, but it, it's amazing. It's amazing what he gets out of people. You know, I guess it's almost like, like what they say about Steve Jobs, how he just had this way of having ridiculously high expectations and people would end up doing impossible things because of that. That's, that's what it was like with Coughlin. And I think probably the secret to his success maybe was just finding the kinds of guys that would respond to that um, or in just kind of bringing right up to the edge to the point where you could avoid a flat-out rebellion. And, and he really got the most out of a lot of guys that way. Do you have a relationship with him to this day or, or communicate with him at all or, or not really? I do, not as much as I used to. Um, but, yeah, we, I think what a lot of guys would say about Coughlin is, like, after you're done with football, you're amazed when you see him outside of football. And I, used to, I actually used to be a lot closer to him. I mean, I'll, I'll basically talk to him maybe once every couple of years now. Um, but I used to live next to him in Jacksonville. When I was done playing, my house was next to his. And I always, I never, I never quite got uh, rid of like that uncomfortable feeling, like that this, this is my coach. Um, even, even as I realized how much more relaxed he was in person, you always have that, that dynamic where you feel like, oh, I'm talking to the principal of the high school and I don't want to say the wrong thing. All right, now you you played with Jacksonville to start your career and end your career. You went to Houston, though, and you were part of uh, the expansion process there. I, I guess first I'm curious, I, I saw you comment on getting drafted in the expansion draft that you weren't totally surprised because the salary cap stuff you knew was in play with Jacksonville and the opportunity for them to maybe get under the cap. But it was – was getting drafted in the expansion draft any different than I don't know getting traded or, or uh, you know any other form of, of player movement or was that maybe a more unique process? I, I, you know, it's not something that happens very often in sports. So, what was that like being a part of it? It was. You're right. It is. It's, it's unique, um, especially given that the Texans, or excuse me, the Jaguars were really getting into a fix with the salary cap. They had spent really, really aggressively. So everybody knew that the expansion draft was an option for some veterans, was going to be an option for some teams and how they were going to handle their veterans during that 19 or during that 2001 season. And when we got selected, you know, so each team could put up a certain number of players or had to put up a certain number of players 
for their expansion draft. You know, some teams, in the way it had been traditionally in the past with a lot of teams, was, okay, we're going to put, like, our bottom five guys on the roster up. In 2002, what happened was a lot of teams said, all right, well, we got to figure out a way to get under the cap, so we're going to put some of our better players up there and hope we get rid of these contracts. The New York Jets did it, and the Texans did it. So because of that, it almost felt a little bit, like uh, flattering to be to be put up for the the draft and you know Tony Baselli and Gary Walker and I all went and I think for the most part we all viewed it as a positive thing because we it's better in in a lot of ways it's better go to Jackson or excuse me go to Houston where our contracts were going to be guaranteed the first year versus some of the other guys that the Jaguars were going to have to end up just releasing over the next year or two because of their salary cap issues um, but we went and. You know, Houston did it big. Like they, you know, they made it look like the draft at Madison Square Garden. They they had it all set up to where you brought out you were brought out on the stage. And for me, it was just it was kind of cool. It was like going to my fantasy draft. You know, it was like, oh, okay, I never get this is what it's like, except without all the suspense. Like I know I'm getting drafted. <laughs> they had eight of us there that were in suits and everything. There there were a lot more guys drafted that day that they didn't know about. But the McNairs wanted to just kind of put on a show for the local fans. And, and that was what they did. So that part of it was really cool. So, you know, I think one of the, the neat things, and, and, you know, there had been football in Houston prior to the Texans, but this was a, a the start of a new franchise. Uh, you are oftentimes referred to as Seth Payne, a member of the original or original member of the Texans. You know, it's 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 like a tag when you're talked about in, in Houston Texan circles. It's like it's it is always attached to you. I. I guess, I don't know, that, that struck me as something that's sort of neat, that you got to be a part of the beginning of something. What was it like from your perspective and actually getting to be a part of that? Um, it was, I'll, I'll say a lot of it was just coming to play football in Texas. You know, more than anything, originally, the first year we were there, and I'd start with the expansion draft, um, it just felt different, you know, because I'd been in Jacksonville for five years, and I was I was a starter, but it was kind of, you know, I was always a fringe starter. I was a guy that was just there on the edge. Uh, and I came to Houston, and it felt, it, it actually, like, felt really, really big for the first time because it's just a bigger city. It's Texas. Um, you know, in, in Jacksonville, it's as much a college football state as, as it is a pro football state. And, and I loved it in Jacksonville, and we, have, we obviously we had some really, really good teams there. But when I got to Houston, it kind of felt like like I had arrived in the NFL because of all the attention the city was pouring on us. Um, and, and it was the first time, like, while wow, you go around, especially that first year, like we had, if you were a member of the Texans that first year, it was really weird. Like, having done nothing to earn it, like win a Super Bowl or anything, we were getting free meals all over town, you know, like <laughs> a bunch of different restaurants that basically we could go in and we were going to get a free meal. Um and that part of it was that part of it was really cool. And then the first year also, there was just a it was a free pass of a season. You know, people were just happy to have football back. The expectations were just about nothing. So every time we won a game, it was like we'd won a playoff game or something. And you know, on defense, we had some really good players. That's one thing Dom Capers wanted to do is we wanted to get good, really good veteran defensive players and make it as easy as possible for some of these younger guys on offense to, to be competitive while they all grew together. That wasn't the best plan, it turned out, but as far as our defense, like I got to play with some 
awesome football players like that that took their jobs really seriously. All right, now I, I want to fast forward to the end of your career. I'm always interested in, in how people make big, tough decisions, and and you know I, I know the decision to retire for any athlete, whether you know they're essentially forced to retire or maybe they have a lot of freedom in the choice. No matter the case, I, I know it's it's not always just an easy. Uh, ho-hum process. What was the process like for you that, that ultimately led you to decide to to stop playing football? Well, let's see. I had been in the NFL for 10 years. I tore my ACL in my 10th season. And at that point, you know, the Texans ended up releasing me. And I wasn't sure at the end of the year. Um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I was coming off an ACL after I had a bunch of injuries. I had, I had several pretty major injuries in the course of a few years. So my wife and I went back to our, and my daughter went back to our house in Jacksonville, which was uh, next, next door to Tom Coughlin, which by the way, I didn't know when I bought the house, I bought the house. <laughs> I bought the house. The realtor said that Tom Coughlin lived in the neighborhood. And the day we were moving in, uh, I see Judy Coughlin come walking up the driveway. And, and, and I said, Oh, Judy, where's, where's your guy's house? But that's us right there, and she pointed oh. like basically at me, <laughs> and it ended up being it ended up being really cool because Judy was really really cool, and Coughlin away from the football field is a completely different person. Um, but we went back to that house, and and it was you know it was the one time in my life where I didn't I say one time in my life it was my one time since I've been in the NFL that I didn't know exactly what I wanted, you know, and I, I wasn't sure exactly if I wanted to come back and I took some free agency visits and and I turned down some offers um I turned down an offer from the Giants actually and uh, that was the year they they went on to win the Super Bowl that season but I turned down I turned down an offer from the Giants and in my gut the right thing to do was to to go with the Giants but it was probably the one time that I'd been in the NFL where I kind of I kind of went with what was easy instead of what I knew was right. So I ended up signing with the Jaguars more than anything because, A, I had a history with the team, and then, B, because they were right there and that's where I lived, which are good reasons, you know. But it wasn't as good a fit for me as it would have been with the Giants. The Giants wanted to let me – Coughlin told me he didn't want me to touch the field until October. I just I was going to rehab, and that was it. I, I got into camp with the Jaguars, and, it, and they wanted me to play right away. And I, my knee wasn't ready for it yet. So I put some really bad film out there in training camp. And it was, it was honestly, like, even when I think about it right now, I'm kind of embarrassed by the, what that film probably looked like. I just wasn't, I wasn't ready to play football anymore. And when the Jaguars cut me, it, it kind of did a number on my ego because I realized, like, oh, wow, I'm – I'm this washed-up guy that can't move around. I, I felt like I was Nick Nolte in North Dallas 40 or something. <laughs> and um, and I kind of, like, I decided at that point, I remember I was sitting down in my, I was sitting down in my daughter's playroom with her, just watching my daughter, who would have been three years old at the time. And I just felt like, yeah, that's, that's it for me. And, um, and I called my mom. <laughs> and, uh, I haven't thought about this in a long time. Uh I called my mom and um, and I left her a message and I just started. I, I remember I let, I kept it together and I told my mom, left her a message that I was retiring, and then I just uh, and then I just started bawling like <laughs> I hadn't cried in a long time. It was really it was really weird and I didn't I didn't expect it, but 
it was something that, you know, from, from the way I tell you, the way I was in high school and college where I was kind of directionless and didn't have a focus. Like when I was in the NFL, I had a lot of focus and I had a lot of direction and I was very, very dedicated. So to, to let it go at that moment after really dedicating 10 years to it, it, um, it, it messed me up. It messed me up way more than I thought it was going to. All right, now you end up, and I don't want to skip ahead uh, too far, but you, you end up getting involved in, in broadcasting. I know after you played, you would call in, uh, and then that evolved into you taking on uh, a, a more permanent role, and you end up back in Houston. I know that you didn't go right from Jacksonville to Houston, but uh, you end up back in Houston, I guess, crossing uh, over to the dark side to some degree, uh, doing the, the broadcasting thing, and, and really... I think what's tough for former players at times is doing sports talk because this is a, a medium in which you are expected to form opinions and you, because of where you were, you're expected to form opinions uh, on a franchise that you were very familiar with and players with whom I'm sure there were uh, not just, there wasn't just familiarity, but maybe friendships. Uh, what was that transition like and, and how did you approach that? Because if I'm not mistaken, when you did make the move, it wasn't like the Texans were competitive like they are these days, they were still really struggling and, and trying to get in the right direction. Well, they, it, you know what? You're right. It is the, the hardest thing is to criticize after you've, after you've been the subject of criticize, criticism as a player, you know, sometimes unfairly, uh, and then other times fairly, but it still feels unfair because you're <laughs> the subject of it. It's, uh, it's, hard, it's hard to cross that bridge. I guess the, the fortunate timing just from a very selfish perspective is that the Texans had had some success by 2012, you know, and, and it made the playoffs. They kind of had finally become a legitimate team. But I didn't start full-time until 2013, and that's when they went 2-14. and 14. So, uh, it, like, it, I, had to, I had to take the plunge very, very quickly because you can't, you can't talk about a 2-14 and 14 football uh, team for – four hours every day uh, and not be critical at some point without losing all credibility. <laughs> so as I kind of watched that season and lived that season, it just gets to the point where you feel like you're, you're a fan, you know, and you're frustrated and you're angry and you just have to let it all out and try to try to be accurate as possible, you know, and, and do your research. But that kind of did it for me. So it was, uh, and, and I'd also been out of league for five or six years at that point, so it wasn't like I was criticizing my very best friends on the team. Um, so I, I, there was a little bit of an indoctrination by fire there. And the the hardest thing for me more than anything was probably just learning basketball and baseball more than it was the, the football criticism side of things. And did you feel like you had like at least a, a strong foundation with basketball and baseball, or were you working from uh, I guess a, I guess a, 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 an empty palette, so to speak, when you you made that uh, attempt? I think I I guess from a casual fan's perspective, it it would have been enough of a foundation. And I think if there was a mistake I made, it's that I thought that I needed to be smarter than I was about baseball and basketball to where I was. I was doing deep, like I was reading Zach Lowe and all these other guys, which I still read Zach Lowe, but I was like studying and trying to get into the analytics of everything, especially because you're in Houston and it's all about analytics with both those squads. Now, now baseball at the time in 2013, nobody was talking about the Astros. So that was, that was easy. Um, with basketball, 
you know, the thing that it took me a while to really learn and figure out is that that's one of the funnest sports to talk about because it's so, the drama is so human and so transparent. Um, but it's also the easiest to kind of, once you start getting into the modern stats and analytics of it, it's really easy to get really dry, really fast. And with basketball, I think it's, um, it's, it, for me, like I said, like the casual knowledge base is almost better because you talk about things that people care about. And, and you kind of always have to remind yourself that, oh, yeah, okay, people don't necessarily want to hear about effective field goal percentage and, um, you, you know, in, in possession. Usage rate, right, yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So I, I guess as you got some experience, you, you became more familiar with, you know, the, the other sports that were important, especially in, in the Houston area. Uh, what were some of the challenges or, or to this day, like what are the things you, you like? What are the things that maybe you don't like about sports talk radio or have you just kind of head over he- heels fallen in love with it all? Um, I, yeah, you know, I think I've loved it. I've started to love it more as I've changed my approach to it. And I think it's kind of the transition within the industry. I think that I, I feel like the hot take is, dying a slow death in a lot of ways, and it's never going to be completely gone. Um, and by that, I don't mean that strong opinions are gone. And, and certainly, you know, some of the debate shows on – the debate shows on ESPN do a disservice to sports radio only in that people call that sports radio. It drives me crazy, Jared, that people be like, they're like, I hate sports radio. Did you hear what Skip Bayless said the other day? I'm like, oh, yeah, but he's not – It's not, not real life, radio. yeah. 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 Um, so I think it's that, like in a lot of ways, I think it's become more authentic. And, and some of that is probably just because of it, just podcasts and the, what people have grown to expect. It just feels like it's, it's more authentic in a lot of ways. Um, and I don't think like the shouting from the rooftops angry all the time is all that appealing to that many people anymore. Maybe I'm wrong, because that's the other thing that happens is everybody's different and everything changes from time to time. Um, but, I've, yeah, I've just kind of realized the more I've relaxed over the course of the last six years, I've really started to just genuinely enjoy having a conversation with my co-hosts. And I've had, I've had two really good co-hosts, and Mike Meltzer and Sean Pendergast, and both of those guys are guys that I can just I, – I feel when things are really good, it just feels like we're too – Two guys that are well informed, but having like a nice, lively conversation, and you know, more than anything, like learning, kind of learning as we go, and and hopefully entertaining our listeners as much as we are, you know, winning an argument or winning a debate. All right, now you know. Speaking of listeners, and I know you played while social media existed, but I, I, I don't know. I think it maybe is fair if I have like the timeline in my head correct and when social media really took off that most of your uh, social media spotlight, I guess, has been as a broadcaster where Twitter has really become what it is and, and it's encouraged that you interact with the listeners and now, you know, listeners can text in and all this stuff. How do you deal with listeners who aren't just reaching out to say, hey, Seth, really like the point, but instead they're being really critical fairly or unfairly or, you know, taking shots? How do you, how do you deal with that balance or, or developing those relationships? Two things, two big things. One is that I think that each person is the world's foremost expert on what they like or do not like. 
So if somebody doesn't like me, I just accept it, you know, and, and it might be for whatever reason. It might be because they don't like my voice. It might be because they don't like uh, the collection of my opinions, whatever it might be. But I stopped, I stopped trying to worry too much about whether somebody likes me or not, because no matter how good you are at doing something, there are going to be people that flat out don't like you. So especially in media, obviously. So I don't, I don't worry about that. I let people be the expert on what they like and don't like. And I try, I try never to argue with somebody about why they should like me. Um, so then beyond that, though, when you get into actual substantive arguments or, or anything else, I, I kind of, this is my rule for social media is I'm not afraid of using the mute or the block button. But before I do it, I try to ask myself, okay, is this person upsetting me because they've genuinely insulted me or are they upsetting me because they're making me challenge because they've challenged my opinion in a way in which I don't know how to respond. Um, and you know, and there's, there's, cause if somebody's just flat out insulting you or they're becoming, or, or they're obviously trolling you or something, um, then, you know, you don't, you don't owe it to that person and you certainly don't owe it to yourself to have to deal with that person anymore. If you find yourself angry on social media and it's because basically somebody just brought up a good point um, or, 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 or maybe a little bit passive aggressively brought up the point, but that they're bringing up a good point um, and that's what makes you angry. Okay. Well, that's a problem with me. So I, I try as much as possible to, to not, it's not like I'm trying to never get mad online, but if I am going to be mad that it's, that it's for valid reasons. All right, final question, Seth. Uh, your wife may be the better athlete. I don't know. Uh, I was told through extensive research and conversations that she was a roller derby superstar, and I remember watching roller derby on TV back in the 90s. Uh, I, I know it goes on. I, I can't say that I've really consumed roller derby, but uh, I I don't know. You know how, how did she get involved, and I guess what was that like being married to – Someone who uh, participated in roller derby. Yeah, roller derby is really interesting because it's kind of the opposite of professional wrestling where, okay, wrestling started out as a real sport and still is, but then professional wrestling grew out of that, which was, you know, obviously staged and scripted. Roller derby started off as staged and scripted back in the 1970s, but somewhere along the way, somebody decided, hey, this would actually be a really cool sport if we, if we made it legitimate. So now it's like a legitimate sport with, with actual rules and everything. Um, and it's, but it's violent and it's rough. So she got into it. Uh, I don't know. It's just all these little leagues just started popping up all around the country. And when we were living in a small town in upstate New York, she got into it before we moved back to Houston. And we came back to Houston, and they have a, they have a pretty big league there um, with a lot of really good roller derby players, athletes. Um, <laughs> and so she, she jumped into it there and she did really well. She ended up getting, she ended up getting a couple of nasty concussions. So like that was, that was time to put up the skates. Uh, but she was the brand animal and, uh, she was awesome. It was really cool. Like it was really cool with her being the athlete in the, in the household. And she is like, she's a much better athlete than me in terms of overall, like can play any sport. Great, incredible hand-eye coordination. She like played, she kept playing co-ed softball you know on into her 40s and was awesome at it and uh yeah I, I, I have no shame about that she's a much much better athlete than I am.
Well, there you go. That's episode 51 of the Justice Set Conversation. Really appreciate Seth giving me the time. And, you know, I, I think his story is quite fascinating. I mean, you heard how uh, non-textbook, I guess you could say, his childhood was. And how many Cornell uh, students do you know who uh, they dropped out of high school? They didn't, they didn't want to finish high school. And uh, and to go on to have the career that he had as a player and, and now as a broadcaster, I really, really enjoy Seth's work. And I really enjoyed my conversation with him. All right, there you go. That's episode 51. Just a reminder, would really appreciate if you would subscribe to the channel. You can catch all the content, whether it's previous and future episodes of the Justice Set Conversation or other interviews and segments uh, that uh, exist uh, on this channel. Would really appreciate if you would subscribe or share. Uh, Until next time, though, stay safe, be healthy, and we'll talk to you later.